0: Welcome to this message from Shuffle Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to his word being preached. I think uh, all of us love a good contest, right, a good showdown. Um, And uh, what we're going to look at today is a contest, a showdown. Uh, I call it a firefight on Mount Carmel. It's a very well-known portion of scripture. So I'm going to be sharing a bit of, around that. That picture up there is my family. Um, aren't my kids beautiful? <laughs> it's not my fault. I had help. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to make them that beautiful. <laughs> um, I, I joked on, um, on our wedding, which is many years ago now. Um, our surname, as you can see there, my surname is Swart. Henny Swart. and um, Swart obviously is Afrikaans for black. So I joked on our wedding day that uh, we're the perfect family for the new South Africa. A white man, a brown uh, woman, and a black surname. <laughs> so, uh, and our kids are coffee with just a touch of cream. It's good, yeah. <laughs> Praise God for the blessings He gives us, eh? And. Um, I just want to give you a little bit of background before I read First um, Kings 18, verse 20 to, t- to 40. Um, the story is about a, a king, Ahab. It's a very dark time in Israel's history, about eight, 900 years before Jesus. And um, the, the, the two, the northern and the southern king- kingdom, have split. They've separated. There's been a civil war. Things are just bad, you know. And then the kings that took over the northern kingdom, they were, I mean, they were bad, and they just went from bad to worse. They were not good kings. You know, I, I think, you know, of, of all the 20 kings of the Northern Kingdom, there wasn't one that was actually a good king. But Ahab was one of the worst, um, the one that we're going to read about. Um, and and he he didn't only um, worship other idols or worship God in the wrong way, but he and his wife. He married a, a wife called Jezebel, who was from the kingdom of Phoenicia, from the city of Sidon. Uh, uh, which was the capital of the god Baal, and she imported Baal worship to uh, to Israel, and she convinced King Ahab to build a temple for Baal in Samaria, the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, and to build an altar there to, to sacrifice to him. So, I mean, not only were they worshiping false gods like they'd done before, but now they'd institutionalized it. There was government-sponsored worship of Baal, this false god. And she appointed uh, 450 Baal prophets and 400 prophets of Asherah and put them on the government payroll. And um, things were really just bad. And it's a very instructive time for us, a a time that's really very, very relevant for us. Because in the past, you know, a few decades ago, the option was shall I believe or shan't I believe? Will I believe in God or will I not believe in God? Th- that was sort of the question when it came to faith, because most places, most countries had sort of one faith. You know, the Germans were Lutheran, the Italians were Catholic, you know, the Afrikaners were Dutch Reform, etc., etc., you know. um, but nowadays, it's not like that anymore. Society has changed. It's no longer a society where you have a single option of shall I believe in God? And there's sort of a single option God, you know, Indians in India it used to be Buddhism. In Pakistan, it used to be uh, Islam. The world has changed. And especially with the internet, now there's not just one option. It's not just shall I believe or shan't I? It's in which God shall I believe? Because there's a whole lot of options out there. And we got to choose. And how do you choose the right God? How do you make that choice? And Elijah has a lot of wisdom for us in how to discern who is the right God, or like he calls him, the living God. How do you know which God is the living God? And um, Elijah helps us answer that question. Now, the Bible is full of contests, full of showdowns. Okay? Just think about Moses and Pharaoh. Little Moses with his shepherd's staff, walking into um, the, the palace of Pharaoh, the greatest emperor of the time. Egypt was the greatest empire of, of, of that time, and confronting him. And there's a showdown between little Moses, the shepherd guy, who's already 80 years old, by the way, so sort of past his prime, <laughs> and Pharaoh, the emperor of the, uh, the king of the greatest empire of the world. And yet God comes, and through the ten plagues, he liberates Israel from the oppression of Egypt and takes them to the Promised Land. But there's this big showdown that happens. Um, I mean, think of other showdowns as well. Um, Joshua, when they get to the Promised Land, Joshua at Jericho and that seven-day showdown where they march around the walls of Jericho and then God crushes the walls and, and they win. Probably the most famous one is David and Goliath. Little David, the shepherd boy, facing against giant Goliath. And he was... He was about six foot nine, six foot, yeah, around six foot nine, which is quite tall. I mean, I'm I'm six foot. Uh, sorry, he was nine foot six and a quarter. I'm about six foot two, so nine foot six and a quarter is like, you know, way up there. And he wasn't like a thin, you know, guy. He was, it was quite big. His um, his ar- his armor and his shield and stuff weighed fifty kilograms. That's heavier than some of you. <laughs> And there's this showdown between David, the teenage shepherd boy, and the big giant Goliath. Okay, They go into the valley as the two champions of the armies and fight one another. Um, and then, of course, Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus and the religious establishment of his day. They hated him and they were, they were plotting to kill him, but Jesus fearlessly faced them. So we have a lot of showdowns in the Bible, and we love showdowns, don't we? We like a good showdown. We like, I mean, think about all those Western movies. Some of you might be a bit too young for for that, but most of us have probably seen a Western movie. And somewhere in a Western movie, you have a showdown. You know, and and the cowboys always walk like this because they've been riding their horses too much. So they, you know, they walk like, their legs like, like this. And then, but then, then they got the gun here. So they, they, they stand back to back and then they walk, you know, in the street and they're like, everyone's watching from the, from the windows, you know, and they walk down. And they turn around and then they, they have like a face-off and they're going to draw. And like, you know, <laughs> you have the showdown. And, and we love it. Um, the Fees Must Fall protest. That was a showdown. And I'm sure some of you enjoyed it. <laughs> Sport. The showdown between South Africa and India on the cricket field. The, the annual showdown between Kaiser Chiefs and Orlando Pirates. We love it. We get out of foos, we blow them, we cheer. We love a good fight. We love a good showdown. And um, this story that we're going to read is probably one of the most dramatic showdowns, not only in the Bible, but in the history of the world, this firefight on Mount Carmel uh, that we're going to read about. So um, it wasn't only, and here's the interesting thing, it wasn't only a showdown between Elijah, the prophet, of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and the 450 Baal prophets. It was also a showdown between Yahweh himself and Baal. Okay? So let's just, let's just read that. In verse 20 of 1 Kings 18 it says, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel, literally it says sent word to all Israel, and assembled the prophets, um, that's the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Let me just interrupt myself quickly there. In the previous verses, Elijah said to him, send to all Israel and bring them all to Mount Carmel. And was the whole nation, representatives from the entire nation. You had thousands and thousands of people descending upon the top of Mount Carmel. I mean, it was just a few people. I mean, this was a big event. Which tells us that this really happened. If you have an event like this, we have thousands of hostile witnesses. Not only 450 Baal prophets who are hostile to, to uh, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and to Elijah, but a king, Ahab, who's hostile to him, and a whole nation who's hostile to him. If this really didn't happen, if someone wrote it up, I mean, this, would have been, this was one of the events of their lifetime. The gathering. You remember? That, I mean, people would have spoken about it for generations to come. They would have told their children the story of how they all went up to Mount Carmel to see this firefight if this didn't happen and someone wrote it up, there was, the whole nation would have stood up as, as witnesses and said, no man, what you're writing there is nonsense, that never happened. The fact that it's written down tells us this really happened. This is not a fairy tale. This is not just a story. This really happened. This is history. Okay, this is history. And it happened on Mount Carmel and Mount Carmel was on the edge between Israel and Phoenicia, the place where where Jezebel came from, which was the the place where Baal was worshipped. So they they met, uh, Mount Carmel was on the border of those two kingdoms. And it, it represents the choice, not only between the two gods, the God of Phoenicia, Baal, and the God of Israel, Yahweh, but also the choice between two kingdoms. Which kingdom do you want to be a part of? The kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? So it says in verse 20, Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two, op- two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Notice they're non-committal. They're not like, yeah, we are for, we are for Yahweh, we are for the Lord, we are for the God of Israel. They're sort of holding back. They're not committed. They're non-committal. In fact, they're probably more committed to Baal, as we're going to see. Um, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for, them, for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but, set, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your god. So he's saying he's addressing the people and he's saying then you call on the name of your god Baal. So he's assuming that Baal is their god and they're not arguing with it. Then call on the name of your god and I will call on the name of the Lord. When you ever see Lord there in capital letters it's, it's a translation of of the Hebrew Yahweh, the God of the Bible. I'll call on the name of the Lord, the God uh, the God who answers with fire. He is God. Then all the people said what you say is good. They wanted to see the showdown. They wanted to see this firefight. They were excited about it. Verse 25 says, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. (laughs) He's teasing them and taunting them a bit. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until blood flowed. Until their blood flowed. I mean, they're serious about this. Verse 29 says, midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. So the whole day passed. They shouted the whole day and, and raved the whole day like that. But it says, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him, and he, prepared the, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom, the Lord, <clears throat> to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold uh, two sayers of seed. That's about 15 liters, roughly, of water, quite a lot of water. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large uh, jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. I mean, you can just see this. That it, <laughs> The the challenge is the God answers with fire, and here they're pouring water on this. This is so dramatic, you know. I'm sure you can hear a pin drop, you know, as everyone's watching. What's going on now, you know? And then it says, at the time of the sacrifice, the, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Very simple prayer. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel... Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you, have t- and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. Then all the pe- when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried out, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Very dramatic, very powerful scene. And I just want to quickly discuss that um, basically under three headings. It's all about a contest, a firefight here on Mount Carmel. It's a showdown. And... Um, I want to look at the nature of the contest. I want to look at the need for the contest, and then I want to look at the result of the contest very quickly. Firstly, the nature of the contest. I think it's very clear that this is not a fair fight. It's an uneven, unbalanced, unfair contest. Okay. Firstly, the the the, the contest is stacked in favor of the prophets of Baal. Um, the first thing is it's in the area of Baal's supposed um, strength. Uh, so he says here in verse 24, the God who answers with fire, he is God. And the fire there obviously is lightning. Lightning can be very powerful. Fire coming from the sky. Now what do you need to know about Baal? Was Baal was a storm god in the Canaanite mythology. He was a storm god who brought the rain, who spoke in a voice of thunder, and who had a spear of lightning in his right hand. That's also how he was depicted in the art of that time. So we have art that has been dug, dug, dug up uh, of depicting Baal. So he was always depicted as bringing the rain, as speaking in a voice of thunder, and as having the spear of lightning in his hand that he can throw. So this is his area of special, uh, specialty. So he was, he was sort of a, a storm god. He's called the rider on the clouds in the literature of, of, of that time. The rider on the clouds, very dramatic. And he was also a fertility god because... The fertility of the land is linked with the rain which supposedly Baal brought. So this is supposedly Baal's area of expertise. Okay, It's in his very area of expertise that God is challenging him, that Elijah is challenging him. He is supposed to be the God who brings the rain. And God drops the gauntlet and says through Elijah in in 1 Kings 17, it won't rain except at my word, the word of Yahweh. It won't rain or dew. And now he's saying, okay, you are known for rain, which you for the last three years, by the way, couldn't bring, just as Elijah had said, but you're also known for lightning. Let's go, let's rumble. (laughs) The God who answers with fire, he's God. So he's challenging Baal in his very area of expertise, supposedly. Secondly, Baal seems to have the majority backing. I mean, you have one prophet of Yahweh, Elijah, you have four hundred and fifty Baal prophets, and the king of Israel is on on Baal's side. He's worshiping Baal, and all the people of Israel are worshiping Baal. The thousands who are there, the hundred, maybe tens or even hundreds of thousands who are there, they're all worshiping Baal, because God. Uh, Elijah says to them, "Call on the name of your God, Baal." So he assumes that. So he's got the majority backing. Then also, they had first option. He says, "You choose a bull first, and and you have the first option." To call on your God. And then they also had the longest time from the morning early, all the way until noon, all the way until the evening sacrifice. The whole day, basically, they were calling on Baal. And you know what happened? Nothing. But also, the odds were not only stacked for, you know, in favor of the Baal prophets, it was also stacked against Elijah. Um, it says in, in 18 verse 30 that the, the altar of Yahweh was in ruins. They already had an altar there already, but, but the altar of Yahweh is in ruins because they had broken it down. They, they were killing the prophets of, of Yahweh, we know from earlier in the chapter, and they were breaking down all the, uh, the, the altars, and, 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 and the temple was broken down. So the altar was broken down, but also the altar was in the wrong place. You see, there was only one place that Yahweh said that there may be an altar to him in Israel, and that's in the temple. We read in in uh, 1 Kings 3, I'm not going to read it for you now, but verse 2 and 3, go and read it. It says, Solomon did well. He did okay. He, he loved God and, and walked sort of in the steps of his father David. But one thing he did that was wrong. He continued worshipping Yahweh on the high places, on the mountaintops, which was the wrong place. So this is even the wrong place to have an altar for Yahweh. But then I mean, the worst of it is, Elijah comes and he says, take four large containers and throw water over the altar, over the sacrifice, over the wood, over everything. He even digs a trench around the altar and fills the trench with water. He says, do it again. And then he says, do it a third time. And it's interesting. He takes 12 stones, which represent rocks, which represent Israel, obviously the 12 tribes of Israel, that's made clear. In other words, those 12 rocks represent the 12 tribes who have hearts of stone, we are supposed to be an altar upon which the sacrifice of the Lord must be sacrificed and the glory of God must be brought. But then he, three times he says, take those four containers. and food." So three times, twel- uh, three times four is 12. Again, representing the 12 tribes and how they are, in a sense, so soaked in water that they cannot be on fire for the Lord. They're spiritually dead. And and here's the thing. They poured so much water over the altar, everything was soaking wet. Even if Elijah had a match, and he struck it, and he could sort of secretly bring it close to the altar without anyone seeing, he wouldn't have been able to light the wood. It was soaked. Completely soaked. So, So this whole contest seemed stacked in favor of the Baal prophets and against Elijah. But here's the thing. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Here's the thing. Elijah said... Elijah gave the commands for all of those things to be done. And he said, everything that is done here is done according to the command of Yahweh. So God gave the commands for all the odds to be stacked in favor of Baal and of his prophets and against Elijah and himself. What's going on here? Why is God stacking the odds against himself? See, God loves doing that. Because when the odds are stacked against God and he wins, he receives even more glory. He receives even more glory. And and God does that throughout Scripture. Think think of Gideon. Remember Gideon had an army. He had to fight against an army that was much bigger, ten times as big as him. God said, there are too many people in your army. But God, we already outnumbered ten to one. No, there are too many people. I want less people. And eventually whittled them down. Remember the story about how they drank some drank, you know, by sticking their head in the water. Others sort of lapped it up from their hands. And eventually there were only 300 left. And God used Gideon and his army of 300 to chase tens of thousands of Midianites away and to defeat them. God loves an unfair fight. Because God never loses a fight, no matter how unfair it is. Think about David and Goliath. I mean, that's, that's an unfair fight. A little teenage boy with a sling against a giant, battle-hardened giant with all his armor, and even an armor-bearer. Um, think about Jesus. Think about Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, walking in sandals. Not a man of war, taking on the whole system who hate him, who have all the political power, and, and, and who eventually kill him on the cross. You see, the thing is, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. And when there's weakness and God still wins, it brings greater glory to him. So here's the thing for you. Listen to this. You get, You need to get this. You need to get this. If it seems that in your life the odds are being stacked against you, God may be fixing to glorify himself in your life. If you feel weak and overwhelmed, like Elijah in the natural must have felt, then maybe God is fixing to do what he did through Elijah's life. And win a great victory through it. So be encouraged. So that's the nature of the the contest. It was was an unfair, unbalanced contest. But then, the need for the contest. Um, It's interesting, in verse 21, let me just read that to you. He says... Um Elijah went before the people and said how long will you waver between two options if the lord is god follow him but if baal is god follow him and it's interesting he only gives two options here when it comes to religion when it comes to belief there are only two options there are only really two op- there aren't really many options i mean even if there are many gods Even if there are many religions, there are actually only really two options. And both of them are options of faith believe in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the true God, or believe in Baal, the false God. So the the options are believe in the true God, believe in the false God. Or, put it differently, believe in the Creator or believe in the creation. God is the only one who's the Creator. There's no other creator except God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Everything else, including angels and demons and human beings and all the earth, and anything that is worshipped, the sun, people worship the sun or the moon or the stars, all of that is created. So you have two options when you want to decide what you're going to worship. You can worship the creator or you can worship the creation. Just bring up Romans 1 verse 25 there. Because that says it explicitly. It says in Romans 1.25, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things. Created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That's the only choice we have. Um, it's Well, there are two options. But in a sense, that leaves us, especially with modern people, as three choices. Um, of well, Let me put it this way. He says, how long will you waver between two options? The word waver there is an interesting word. Um, it's, waver is an is a acceptable translation, but literally it means to limp or to um, sink or to hobble. To, to hobble, to limp, or to sink. Just go to the next scripture. Second um, Samuel 4, verse 4, it says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. Uh, he was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That's the news that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And then it says, his nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. He, he fell, obviously hurt his back or his neck or something, and he became crippled. He says his name was Mephibosheth. Now, when it says he fell and became crippled, when he became lame, it's exactly the same word there. How long will you be lame or limp? Between two options. Exactly the same word in the Hebrew. So in other words, what Elijah is saying is, there are these two options before us. Worship the creator, worship the creation. Worship the true God, Yahweh. Worship some other Baal, God. And and by the way, the word Baal literally means a Lord. There were many Baals. So it's just representative of false gods. And he says, but you can you can sort of sink or limp or fall between these two options. How? How can you sink or limp or fall between these two options, uh, or amongst these, these two options? The first way is if you think, or if you try and choose both options, because that's what the Israelites were doing. Many of the Israelites were saying, because the worship of Yahweh was their national religion. Yahweh was, after all, the one who made them a nation, who brought them out of Egypt to the promised land in the first place. But they were saying, we'll worship Yahweh from Friday to Monday. But then the rest of the week, we're going to worship Baal. <laughs> and we're going to worship both. And, and Elijah said, that's not a viable option. That'll cause you to sink between those two options. Because you're not choosing one or the other. You're trying to hold on to both. You're going to fall. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to be limp. It's not going to work. So many people who want... To grow spiritually. You need to get this. You need to hear this. Want to grow spiritually. Cannot grow spiritually. They get stuck. Because they become limp. They're trying to limp along. And they become lame between two options because they don't want to choose. You have to choose. In in the New Testament, in Matthew 6 verse 24, Jesus says, You cannot serve two masters. Because either you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll be faithful to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon. And Mammon there was the God of, of wealth, money. You cannot serve two masters. You've got to choose. So the one way to fail, the way that Elijah is, is to try and choose both. The other way, and this is more sort of a modern way, is to try and choose neither. What do you mean by that, Annie? <laughs> Just bring up um, the next uh, the slide of the elephant. Um in in those days, not believing was not really a choice. Everyone believed. But nowadays, as modern people, we think we can choose not to believe. You could, we, we think we can say, but I'm secular. Ah, oh, Henny, I like this religious thing for you, and that's good for you. You know, and maybe you think religion is a, is a, is a crutch, and maybe you need that crutch, any. But you know, I'm a secular person, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist, I choose not to believe. Elijah would say to you. You're sinking between two options. You're wavering between two options. You're becoming limp between two options. It's also going to fail in exactly the same way. Because here's the thing. Saying that you don't believe actually reveals that you do believe. It's it's actually impossible not to believe something. It's actually impossible not to have a position. It's actually impossible to be neutral religiously and in terms of faith. What do you mean by that? Well, um, let's put it this way. Many people will say, no, you know, uh, it's great to have faith, but we must, we must be tolerant. We mustn't impose our view of truth on anyone else. But hang on. <laughs> when you say that, you know, all religions are fine, all religions are basically the same, all religions are just different ways to the same God, and, and you shouldn't therefore impose your idea of truth or who God is on other people. Aren't you then doing the exact thing that you're forbidding? Aren't you imposing your view of truth on everyone else? Because the Christians, the Muslims, the Hindus, the whoever else are saying, our gods are very different, our religions are very different. And you're saying, no, 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 no. you're all wrong, I'm right. Your religions are actually all the same. I'm right, and you're all wrong, and I'm going to impose my view of religion on you, my view that all religions are the same, and that you shouldn't impose your truth on other people. In other words, I'm, 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 I'm calling you not to impose your truth or your view of truth on other people by imposing my view of truth on you. <laughs> Can you see that? Can you see how hypocritical it is? Can you see how it's impossible to be neutral in this? Now, people often use this story... Depicted by this picture to to sort of back it up they 'll say there's a, this emperor, say a Chinese emperor, uh, and he wanted to have fun, so he got a couple of you know six blind men in to his uh, palace and he brought an, uh, and he had an elephant there, so he had the blind men walk to the elephant and then he stand at each of them stand at, at a different place next to the animal and then touch the animal and then say. What, what do they get? And the, the first one at the front, he got the, the the trunk, and he was like it's some flexible, you know, hose pipe like thing. And the other guy got the tusk, and it's no, it's 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 a, it's a sharp, hard object. Maybe it's a spear or something. Another guy got the ear, and he said, No, man, you guys are wrong. It's a flappy, big thing like a like a big leaf, you know, of, of a of a tree. And the other guy got the the leg, and he's like, No, man, guys, you're all wrong. It's 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 a big, you know, rough thing like a like a tree trunk. Other guy got the sign and he said, No man guys, you, you're missing it. You know, I, I can feel very clearly it's 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 a it's a big flat surface like a wall. And the last guy got the tail and he's like, guys, you're all wrong. You know, I, I can feel yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a it's a stringy thing with, with with a little tassel at the end like a like a brush or something. And all were like fighting. No, 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 you guys are all wrong. You know, I'm and, and some people say, well, all the world religions are like that. They're all feeling, you know. The same God, you know, but just different areas of the same God, and they're arguing with one another. Does that sound convincing to you? <laughs> Some of you are nodding. <laughs> here's, here's the problem with that. The person telling the story, wanting to prove that all religions are actually a way to the same God, represented by the elephant here. In the story, who. Who, who represents the person in that story? Think about this. It's the emperor, right? The person telling the story is telling the story as though they were the emperor. As though all the religions of the world are the blind people who only have partial insight and vision. But the one telling the story, the, the atheist or the agnostic or the whoever, is the emperor who sees the whole picture. Can you see what they're saying? They're saying, no, man, you guys all have only partial vision, so you must be more humble. But they actually say, assuming that they have full vision, I can see the whole of God. All the other world religions can only see part of it. So all the other world religions must submit to my idea of who God is. Encouraging humility from a position of arrogance. Can you see that? Saying, Don't impose your partial, incomplete view of truth on other people, but claiming, (laughs) you know, saying to the religions, don't think that you have the whole truth, but then claiming to have the whole truth so that they can stand in judgment over all the religions. The only way you can see that the blind people are only seeing part of the same elephant is if you can see the whole elephant. Can you see that? So once again, that's not a viable option. You cannot choose neither and say, you know, all religions are the same. Another way to, to sort of limp or fall is, um, let me just see here in in verse 26. It says, uh, right at the end, and they danced around the altar they had made. Now, now it's a bit, um, the translation of the NIV is a, is a bit misleading. It sort of covers over what's going on there. The word they translate, dance, is exactly the same word when Elijah says, do not limp or do not sink, or do not waver between two options. That word for, for waver or, or limp or sink is exactly the same word that is used here. They, when it says they danced around the altar, it says they limped around the altar. They've been dancing all morning, from morning till noon. They were so tired, they were limping around. You know? And he's saying the other way to limp is not only to try and choose both options, God and Baal, Yahweh and Baal, or to choose no option, but also to choose the wrong option, to choose Baal, like the Baal prophets. You're still going to sink. You're still going to fall. You're still going to limp. You're still going to be as lame as Mephibosheth, who broke his back. Um, So, here's the thing. Why? Why was the contest needed? Firstly, the contest was needed to show who is the living God, the true God. Because if God sent rain, like he told um, Elijah was going to do in the beginning of the chapter, if he sent rain... If the rain came and there had been no contest to prove who was the true God, then either side could have claimed victory and said, well, our God, Baal, sent the rain, or Yahweh sent the rain. So God was making sure that there could be no confusion when the rain did come by having this contest. And then secondly, here's the thing. In the beginning, Elijah says, and you need to listen to this, you need to get this. If Yahweh is God... Follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Whoever, whatever you follow is your God. You have a God. Even if you say, "No, I'm, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in any God." Well, someone has to do the things that a God would, have, would do in your life, you know for instance, decide what's right and wrong, you know, take care of you. I mean, we, how much of our lives of what's going on in our lives can we control? Not very much, right? We cannot control what happens to us tomorrow. We cannot control what other people do to us. We cannot control the economy of our country. We cannot control how other people drive, you know, in the street. We cannot control how other people treat us. We cannot control those things. But if you say, I don't believe in any God, then someone else must do that for you. Must decide what's right and wrong, take care of you, provide for you. And, and then you're just going to have to do it yourself. So you have a God. It's just you. But whatever you follow, that is your God. What do you follow? What determines the direction of your life? What do you think about most? What do you feel most strongly about? That is your God. Even if like the Israelites, I mean, they were very religious. They were part of the people of God. The Old Testament people of God. Yet, even though they were part of the Old Testament people of God, they were following Baal. So Baal was really their God. And there are so many people today who come to church who are part of the people of God, supposedly. But really, they're following a different God. And you can tell which God you're following, which God is really your God by what you follow. What direction does your life take? What is your life focused on? What do you spend most of your time on? What do you spend most of your money on? That is what you are following. That is your true God. What is the one thing that if it's taken away from you, you'll say life is not worth living anymore? Is there anything like that? Do you say, well, if I lose my boyfriend? Or unless God gives me a husband or a wife, then that husband and that wife is really your God. And you're really following them. Or do you put in all your effort, all your energy, in your job to get that promotion, rather than into serving God? Well, then that job is your God. Not Yahweh, the God of the Bible. You see, we laugh at the ancients because they had all kinds of idols and they made little images, you know, golden or wooden images and worship them. But don't we intellectually make also images and worship them? Don't we in our hearts also carve out all kinds of images and worship them and follow them as our gods? We do. We just hide it a bit better, but we do. And we need this contest between the real God, the true God, and our false idols. You see, God is making war against your idols. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, God's making war against your idols. Now finally, let's get to the result of this contest. Elijah clearly shows us how to discern the true God from false gods. Firstly, false gods are not really gods. In verse 27, let me just read that to you. That's the place where, where Elijah taunts them. He says, At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, to mock them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling, or maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. You see, false gods aren't really gods. And, and Elijah gives us a few clues there. The first thing he, is, he says, maybe he's thinking. Maybe he's trying to figure something out. <laughs> you see, false gods, like us, have to try and figure things out. God, the true God, already knows. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Have you ever realized that God never realizes anything? God already knows everything. He doesn't have to think about something to figure it out. He knows it. He's God. <laughs> okay. Secondly, he says um, maybe he's busy. Now, once again, that's a the NIV. The translation's not very literal there. Uh, when he says maybe he's busy, he's, he's literally in the Hebrew saying um, maybe he went to the toilet to go and take a dump. Maybe he went to relieve himself. <laughs> Why would you have to why do we have to relieve ourselves? Because we eat, and then you know what we eat, some of it you know gets left over. Okay? So a false God is a God who has to eat, and therefore he has to relieve himself. He needs something to sustain him. The true God needs nothing to sustain him. He doesn't have to go to the toilet because he doesn't eat, he doesn't have to eat. He's not dependent on anything. Can you see how Elijah's mocking them? <laughs> Maybe he's traveling. You see, false gods have to travel places because they're not everywhere at the same time. The true God is already there. The true God doesn't come to church. Therefore, we shouldn't welcome him here. He's already here. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. There's nowhere that he's not. And I always find it amazing that a God who is so immense that he's everywhere that so many people can actually miss him and not realize that he's there. God is here right now. He's been here all along. And some of us have been missing him. He doesn't have to travel anywhere because he's already there. And then he says, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he got tired. You know, He overexerted himself. Now he's tired. He must take a nap. (laughs) The true God doesn't have to take a nap. He never gets tired. He's almighty, all-powerful. So so the false god is not really a god. Secondly, false gods cannot speak. Twice, uh, in both in verse 26, it says there was no response, no one answered. And then in verse 29, even more emphatic, it says, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Twice it says the same thing. He's He's dumb, he cannot speak. He's a false god, he cannot speak. And they had to prophesy on his behalf and rave and go mad, but he couldn't speak. But Elijah said, God, answer with fire from heaven that everyone can know that that I'm doing all of these things in in, in obedience to your commands. So the true God speaks. And the third thing is, false gods eventually, inevitably lead to self-harm. After they danced and he started taunting them, what did they do? They took swords and spears and started cutting themselves until their blood flowed. Both physically and psychologically. Worshipping false gods always, always, always leads to self-harm. It's bad for us. It's bad for you. It's bad for me. We will end up harming ourselves. False gods want us to harm ourselves. Demonic spirits want us to harm ourselves. There's a story. Uh, those of you taking notes can just write on Mark 5 verse 5 of this demoniac in, 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 in the Gadarenes. Jesus travels with the boat across to the, to the um, Gadarenes, and there's this guy amongst the tombs. I mean, they tried to chain him, but, but he was so strong, he broke the chains and stuff. And it says he used to live amongst the tombs, and he used to howl at night, and he used to cut himself with stones until he bled. You see, demons will always cause you to self-harm. And, and that's what false gods are. They, they're demonic. They will always always cause you to harm yourself, to hurt yourself, either physically, like in these cases, or psychologically. They will damage you. They don't have your best interest at heart. They're unable to produce your ultimate flourishing. Only the true God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, can do that, can cause you to truly flourish. Um, The true God, you know, where where false gods lead to self-harm, the true God didn't require us to shed our blood for Him. He, in stark contrast to that, shed His blood for us on the cross. You see, He was willing to be harmed so that we would not have to be. He was willing to have His body broken and beaten so that we wouldn't have to shed our own blood. And fourthly, um, you must make... They had to, you must always make a false god responsive. That's why they shouted. That's why they danced. That's why they cut themselves. They were trying to make their false god, Baal, responsive. Whereas exactly the opposite is true of the true god of the Bible, Yahweh. He makes us responsive. He makes us We don't have to make him responsive. He makes us responsive. Look at what it says in, um, in uh, verse 31 um, to 34. It says, it, it talks about, um, Elijah says he took two, the 12 stones. And then he, he refers to to um, Jacob, where it says, and, and you will be called Israel. Just bring up Genesis um, 32 on the screen. I just want you to see that, because that's the, the passage from which he quotes. It says, then the man said, now this is the angel of the Lord. This is the pre- a pre-incarnation of Jesus, who was wrestling with Jacob. Remember, Jacob wrestled with the angel, the angel of God, the Lord, uh, Jesus, the um And it says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Now, how did he overcome? How did he overcome? By losing. (laughs) The angel of the Lord touched his hip and his hip got out of socket, you know. It's because he said, I won't let you go until you bless me. He said, fine, I'll bless you. He touched his hip and now he's walking with a limp, you know. I'm blessed by the Lord. Hallelujah. Look at me limp, you know. (laughs) Here's the thing. When you struggle with God, you win by losing. The only way to win in your wrestling with God is to lose. Because when you lose and surrender to God, you get onto God's side and God doesn't lose. God always wins. Like Jacob, we must win in our wrestling against God by losing to Him, by surrendering to Him. Now, it's interesting. He, the 12 tribes were descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. And like I said, those 12 stones represented the 12 stony hearts of the tribes of Israel, drenched with water, you know, inflammable. And you know what God comes and does? He not only consumes the sacrifice on those, that 12 stone altar, he consumes the stones themselves. In other words, he, through his sacrifice, his accepted sacrifice, consumes our stony hearts that are drenched with water, that don't want to catch fire for the Lord. He consumes it and He gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh. He gives us a heart of flesh. But in verse 37, that's probably the most telling one. Listen to what it says in verse 37. It says, Answer me, O Lord. This is Elijah praying. Answer me so that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. You see where, where the... the Worshipers of the false prophet have to dance and slash themselves and cry out and, you know, do everything imaginable to try and make him responsive. It is God who makes, who turn, who is turning the hearts of Israel back again. God makes us responsive. That's how you know the true God. You don't have to make him responsive. He makes you responsive. He turns your heart back again. He gives you a heart of flesh for a heart of stone. And then finally... the true God doesn't call fire down on the people who deserve it. But he receives it on, his, on himself. Let's just go to, to Luke chapter 9. Um, and Luke chapter 12. And I want to close with this. In Luke chapter 9, verse 52, it says, and he, and he sent, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him uh, who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people of that village uh, there did not welcome him. Because he was heading to Jerusalem, there was a racist sort of attitude between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated each other. So they said, well, you're going to Jerusalem. You're obviously a committed Jew. We don't want you as a committed Jew in our Samaritan village. Get out of here. Then the disciples, James and John, saw this. They asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? I was like Elijah. You want us to call fire down on them and destroy them? They certainly deserve it, just like the people of Israel with their stony hearts deserved it. And yet... Just like in that case, God didn't answer with fire and destroy with fire the people with their stony hearts who deserved it. He destroyed the sacrifice in their place. And same here. Look, it says, you want us to call fire down like Elijah from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and went to another village. He said, in, in another translation, he says, you don't know from which, of which spirit you are. In other words. I am the God who does not call fire down on the people with their stony hearts who deserve it, who deserve the fire of my judgment. No, where does the fire go? It consumes the sacrifice. Luke 12, Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish that it were already kindled. But I have a baptism, a fiery baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it's complete. Jesus says, I am the sacrifice. Not only am I not going to call fire down like Elijah on the people who deserve it, I'm going to receive that fire of judgment myself in their place so that they don't have to be to receive it, so they don't have to be consumed by it. See, the reality is each of us deserves that fire. Each of us deserves that fire. There's none of us who can say I've never lied. There's none of us who can say I've always honored my father and my mother. There's none of us who can say I've always given God the glory that is due to him all the time. None of us can say that. All of us deserve the fire. And God, instead of consuming us with the fire, he consumes himself with the fire. He experiences the fire of judgment so that he consume not us, but our stony hearts and give us a new heart of flesh in its place. Some of you this morning are struggling with God, you're wrestling like, with God like Jacob. You' wrestling with Him. You're saying, "God bless me, You're wrestling with Him, Lord, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. God wants to bless you. God gave His life so that He can bless you, so that he doesn't have to judge you. But the way to receive His blessing is to surrender to Him, to lose your wrestling match with him. Some of you need to stop wrestling. Some of you need to give in this morning. Some of you need to say, I surrender. I repent. Lord, I'm going to allow you to win. And then you're going to realize, like Jacob, even though you walk with a bit of a limp, that you are blessed by Almighty God. Thanks for listening to this message from Shafa Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.chauffer.joberg.org.